I hope you enjoyed this episode. But first, I'd like to thank the amazing sponsors of this podcast. Managing on-chain payroll, vesting plans and airdrops with traditional solutions can quickly become time-consuming and lead to misaligned incentives. Sabder is a battle-tested, free-to-use, open-source solution for token distribution. It's available on Ethereum and nearly every EVM chain out there, and the core protocol is decentralized and permissionless. Organizations like Shapeshift, Maple Finance, and TokenSight have used Sabder to manage vesting plans and grants with hundreds of different recipients. Treasury managers are head over heels for Sabder thanks to the peace of mind and great user experience. Learn how Sabler can boost your organization and book a demo to get started at sabler.com. So what got you into founding BadgerDAO in the first place? Um, Badger in particular was motivated by my experience um, working with a variety of different more CFI oriented uh, businesses in 2018 and 19. And there was a lot of promises and black boxes around deposit crypto, earn this, borrow against this. And um, those things didn't work out and it didn't work out in my favor or um, in favors of you know other folks participating in the space. So that was the motivation for me to say, well, why don't we build this, but completely transparent, non-custodial, and um, let the users or the people that are actually using this stuff verify, you know, what they're using versus, you know, these black boxes. And we saw it, you know, last year and the year prior with a variety of other implosions of, of similar nature. Um, and, and then subsequent to that, you know, I thought there was this lack of attention and focus on how to bring utility to Bitcoin. And I felt like there was this wonderful marriage that could come to light between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Although many folks looked at Bitcoin and Ethereum as competitors and there's maximalism and tribalism on either side, which I think is pretty ridiculous since it's really more one fight than it is, um, you know, these, these individual factions. But nonetheless, you know, I felt like there was this massive opportunity for bringing utility to Bitcoin on DeFi, powered by, you know, the Ethereum network and, and the smart contract infrastructure there. That was the big push. And, and then, of course, you know, I was inspired by this concept of community driven organizations, on chain organizations, and decided to, you know, make the experiment very real and um, kind of initiate Badger and then have it be in the hands of everyone moving forward, uh, which was, you know, came with a lot of ups and, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, downs, as you would imagine, the uh, unorganized chaos of a of a non-chain organization may look like. Yeah, as crypto often does. Mm -hmm. And what was your vision for, let's say, merging the Ethereum with the Bitcoin? Well, the yeah, the the main there? vision there was like there needs to be a whole variety of of products and protocols that bring those two. Um, those two assets and networks together. And it, it's not just one product. So the, the vision with Badger is that it's an ecosystem that's powering a whole slew of different protocols, right? So in Badger's kind of chapter one, as I call it, you know, there was a Bitcoin bridge um, that allowed people to bring Bitcoin to Ethereum and vice versa. 
There was um, yield products that allowed people to deposit tokenized Bitcoin or native Bitcoin and earn yield via DeFi strategies. There was uh, synthetic Bitcoin, so representations of Bitcoins with different type of mechanics to ensure their stability and so forth um, that were exclusive to the Ethereum network. Um, there was a whole variety of things, let's call it, even in like the, you know, the more popular and well-known curve wars and convex ecosystem and all that. Um, Badger was one of the early players there and how you leverage kind of this incentivization um, ecosystem to power, you know, Bitcoin oriented products. That was a, a bit of an experiment on that front as well. So just a whole bunch of things. Um, I think now, you know, three years in and, launching a variety of these protocols and seeing how the ecosystem has changed and then also the market, it it becomes clear more than ever now that we need actually a more trustless representation of Bitcoin, um, one that can really grow and expand uh, via the uh, Ethereum network versus trying to squeeze or, or fit, you know, what's working on the Bitcoin or, or excuse me, what's working with the Bitcoin asset into something on um, the Ethereum side. It's more so let's create a trustless representation of Bitcoin that is native to the Ethereum network versus relying on people bringing Bitcoin and so forth. And I think that can drive enormous demand for Bitcoin, the asset as a whole, um, while adhering to much more of a decentralization and censorship resistant set of values because it's smart contract only completely, you know, verifiable on chain as um, extreme transparency can ensure uh, complete non custody uh, by users or self custody by users. Because, you know, what we've seen is you know, this, this bridging ecosystem, not only is there very little demand for Bitcoin holders to bring it to Ethereum, there's also uh, this lack of uh, infrastructure to ensure that that can remain decentralized. So you kind of, you, you break the decentralization ethos, even when just coming over and that in itself is a, uh, a big issue. So now more than ever, I think helping have a trustless Bitcoin on the bottom of the stack for DeFi can help build a stronger foundation across the board. And then the demand for that, and in turn, Bitcoin can be driven by this great ecosystem of smart contract development. And what kind of innovations do you think a protocol like that could foster for the whole ecosystem? Well, um, so we, so we're building, so the Badger, the Badger DAO and different contributors in the Badger DAO ecosystem are building uh, EBTC. Um, EBTC is a smart contract based, based Bitcoin. So it's a, an asset um, that's completely um, immutable smart contracts on the Ethereum network that anybody can uh, hold and transfer and mint and burn and so forth and so on. So the asset is backed by a CDP protocol. For those that aren't familiar with what a CDP protocol is, it's a collateral debt position protocol. Um, you know, spearheaded by MakerDAO um, with their DAI asset uh, many years back. But akin to that, people will deposit a collateral, a variety of different collateral, 
and mint and or borrow or open up, you know, uh, a loan with um, in Maker's World, you know, a USD asset with EBTC, um, you're opening up a Bitcoin denominated loan. So um, EBTC, the asset uh, is, is a bit different from the CDP protocol. CDP protocol is one of potentially many protocols that could be backing EBTC. But um, the CDP protocol in particular allows for anybody with staked ETH uh, to be able to borrow or mint EBTC and do it for 0% fees. So that's one example of what's possible in building a representation of Bitcoin that's native to the Ethereum network, that's powered by uh, smart contracts versus having to bring Bitcoin over and so, so forth and so on. You can almost, almost look at it like a, a Bitcoin peg stablecoin to an extent. Um, but that's one example to answer your question on you know what some of those possibilities are. We're obviously extremely bullish on uh, the potential uh, for something like that. We think there's an immediate need for um, people that want to long the ETH BTC ratio and do it in the most capital efficient way or the cheapest way which uh, the CDP protocol for eBTC allows for. Uh, but then on the flip side, because staked ETH's under the hood, you have a consistent source of yield um, that can help power the utility of the Bitcoin asset. So in this instance, there's no fees, but there's a percentage of the um, collateral yield that's sitting there earning that can be used and, and repurposed to incentivize people to hold EBTC as an example. And um, all of a sudden, now you have a representation of Bitcoin on Ethereum that is, again, completely transparent and verifiable on chain on your phone in a couple clicks just to see what the backing looks like with a source of yield that scales with um, the creation of this asset since it needs to be collateralized for it to come to to life. So that's one example of potentially, you know, many and many, many that I think can come to light in this concept of um, introducing smart contracts that can mint new Bitcoin, right? And yes, it's a representation of Bitcoin. But over time, the bigger that gets, the more stable that gets, the more of a, Bit a trusted Bitcoin asset that can become. But now you have um, the ability to mint new Bitcoin and do it um, as a use case and utility of different DeFi or different appetites of users that are that are involved in DeFi, right? Versus having to rely on, um, you know, obviously the the proof of proof of work infrastructure on uh, Bitcoin and for miners to uh, bring this Bitcoin to life. So it's um, I think the possibilities are endless, man. There's a lot to unpack here. So maybe can we get a little more high level, like what is EBTC? How does it work? What, what does it mean to have a soft bag? How is that soft bag done in the first place? And what does it mean to mint uh, EBTC as well? Sure. So uh, EBTC is a Bitcoin representation or an asset that's intended to be pegged to the Bitcoin price that is native to Ethereum meaning that it's a set of smart contracts and it's a token contract um, on Ethereum, 
right? That's what it is. It's not Bitcoin that was brought over or anything along those lines. It's no different than a stable coin, a standard ERC-20 that's minted or created um, on Ethereum. Now, the difference is that it's intended to be pegged to the price of Bitcoin. The question then becomes is how do you enable it to be pegged, right? That's the big challenge, I think, in general. Uh, again, I'm going to continue to use reference to USD-based stablecoins because, you know, they've grown tremendously. And, and I think they help bring a reference for people and how that could potentially work. Um, so in EBTC, the assets first iteration of what's backing it, there's a CDP protocol that's backing it. Okay. So the way the CDP protocol works is you can use stake ETH to mint it, right? Or open up a, um, a debt position. There's a minimum collateralization ratio. So you can do it as much as you want. You can do 200% collateralization. So if you put $100 down, you can borrow $50 against it. Again, these are all just a user maintaining custody of these assets, interacting with smart contracts. There's no human involvement in this whatsoever. These smart contracts are all immutable. There's very little to no governance parameters. So, you know, humans can't get involved in if they're multi-sigs, if they're DAOs, if whatever, you can't change some of these parameters um, and or obviously touch the user's funds. It's completely in their control. But they dictate, you know, what type of loan do I want? Um, do I want a more risky loan that's 110% collateralization, over collateralization? Do I want a, a less risky loan that's 300% over collateralization? The user dictates it, and at the point of execution, EBTC is minted and given to the user, and their stake ETH is now sitting in that smart contract. Now, the way that it works is that if the loan, based on price feeds of stake ETH and um, BTC, if the loan falls below the minimum threshold of 110%, Again, no difference than um, borrowing against collateral on a money market like Aave or using a CDP system like Maker for DAI. If it falls below that liquidation threshold, the user's at risk of liquidation, to which if they can top up or pay back some of their loan in time, they won't be at risk of that liquidation. Um, but that's kind of how the loan works. And um, as part of that, as part of that uh, loan operation, there is zero fees that are charged. So the smart contracts do not charge initiation fees, closing fees, interest fees, nothing along those lines. But instead, the system as a whole looks at the yield that the collateral is earning because it's all staked ETH and takes a percentage of that, um, which is managed by governance, what that percentage is. And that now that's called the protocol yield share and Badger Dow will decide what to do with that. Right. Um, the intention is to refocus all of that yield or incentives into creating a yield environment for EBTC, the asset. So people say, oh, I want to use my stake ETH to borrow EBTC and then do something with it. Right. Because that's the power of uh, a system like this. So that's, that's really how it works. Um, there's also a redemption mechanic that allows anybody to redeem EBTC at any time 
Um, you don't even have to have a loan. You can just redeem if you hold EBTC at all times, you can redeem it for stake thief. And um, there's a fee that could potentially scale there based on uh, the redemption demand. And that's really how EBTC works. And how does the governance for BadgerDAO look like? Because governance is one of those tr tricky things that can make or break uh, a DAO. So what is the process in BadgerDAO? So BadgerDAO's been around for three years and we've done, I think, 102 or 103 different um, governance proposals that have that have gone through the, the governance infrastructure. And there's 30, I think, 31 or 32,000 token holders. Um, so Badger uh, kind of spearheaded a lot of the, uh, the DAO, specifically in the DeFi area, um, kind of emergence. Uh, but today, Badger has kind of evolved to be more of a representative democracy where it has uh, different smaller groups that are, um, you know, kind of a checks and balances are kept in place of those people on those councils, as we call them, by token holders. Those councils are then um, empowered to make more efficient, well-informed decisions on behalf of token holders. And there's, you know, um, voting cycles and things along those lines for these different types of councils. And then through that activity, um, it obviously allows the, the DAO to progress and, and eliminate some of the pain that comes with asymmetry of information and inefficiency of coordination amongst, you know, all these individual uh, token holders and so forth. But um, for EBTC in particular, you know, the contributors, uh, myself included, that were involved in bringing it to life, you know, believed that you should remove as much governance around the tech as possible, right? For even what I just suggested around BadgerDAO governance, you know, I think DAO governance is more suited for um, how you decentralize and manage an on-chain organization. I don't necessarily think it's, it's the path for how you um, manage a set of smart contracts, right? I think there's this progressive decentralization of the tech or the smart contracts that needs to come over time. But, you know, the commitment with EBTC was to bring immutable contracts that can't be changed, that have as little governance parameters in place as possible. So as an example, the minimum collateralization ratio can't be changed. That's, I think, important. The fee infrastructure can't be changed. The protocol yield share can be changed, but the fee infrastructure can't. The core oracle that's being used for the BTC and STE price can't be changed. Um, there's a variety of there's a variety of other things, but obviously the the contracts are not upgradable, so you can't upgrade the contracts and touch users' positions, as an example. You know that's the reality of what most DeFi protocols look like today. Those things are possible. Um, I don't think it's anyone's particular fault. I think it's the immaturity of the technology. But when there is an opportunity, and in our world with this protocol in particular, CDP protocols are the most battle-tested kind of set of DeFi primitives that exist. And EBTC in particular was built off of, you know, the shoulder of these, you know, these great innovators as well, um, specifically with the foundational code base um, built off of Liquidity and their LUSD stablecoin. Um, we then went forward and made a, a variety of different um, innovations and changes and so forth. But, you know, that foundation 
creates you know a, a deep level of strength i'd say in not only the confidence to bring something immutable to market but also the confidence in users and using in you know interacting with these types of smart contracts now from a security standpoint uh, i think there's a whole exercise variety of exercises that builders need to go through and bring in some of this stuff to life even more so when it's immutable smart contracts uh, but to answer your question specifically you know we with ebtc in particular we're trying to remove as much governance as possible and isolate governance um, around badger to the operational side of the organization not the technology yeah and with that in mind badger DAO, the the collateral that is only accepted it's the staked if from lido correct correct and Lido's right now has been in some controversy, you know, they're reaching a dangerous threshold and they're like, you know, the governance system is not one of the best ones and there's all sorts of things that could go wrong and like in terms of centralization and risks there. Do you have um, any comment on that? Is there something that you guys have in mind? Are you thinking of how that could impact the decentralization and the permissionless aspect of EBTC if something with LIDAR would go sideways? Yeah, it's good that you brought that up. So so obviously anybody that's using EBTC in this current form with um, this STETH only collateral CDP system, you're assuming the, the risk and the centralization vectors of that base collateral being STETH. So someone's uncomfortable with interacting with LIDO or STETH or has reserves, there's a likelihood that they'll be uncomfortable with using EBTC because it's backed exclusively by that, right? But that's what, you know, that's to the user to decide. I think the market, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation, but, you know, liquidity and capital kind of says a different story, right? Like, you know, uh, STETH is a 14 or $15 billion asset by far one of the most, if not the most successful DeFi primitives and protocols um, that exists. And it's and it's wild that it was only a few years ago. They actually launched after Badger, which is insane. But um, nonetheless, yeah, like my, my opinion, so my opinion on uh, STETH, and we obviously went through a deep analysis to understand like what is the base asset uh, for collateral in this system to start in particular. And um, really what, Really what uh, sold us was, obviously, it's exceptionally more liquid and the total addressable market of what EBTC can become or how many loans can be opened by users or debt open or EBTC that comes into market is a product of what the uh, market cap is of the underlying collateral, right? And it was just so dominant that it didn't make sense to pursue others, at least to start. But... That's a bit secondary, you know, from a decentralization first standpoint, which is the intention and goal of EBTC, right? And I think even with an SD based asset, it is still exceptionally more decentralized and censorship resistant than something like WBTC, which is a $5 billion asset that represents 95, 97% of all um, tokenized Bitcoin in DeFi and, and really used anywhere. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to it, all of the different liquid stake tokens, ETH tokens, they are all 
centralized, right? The actual asset that a user is holding, the STE, the RE, the uh, Fraxy, right? These actual tokens, they are upgradable, right? The the there is the ability to change that token now. The conversation around decentralization of uh, node operators and the infrastructure behind it is a whole other conversation. But if you're looking at an asset for, you know, a user is going to hold this asset and to, to deposit into these contracts, the, the upgradability or lack of upgradability of that asset is pretty darn important. And because of the lack of differentiation in terms of upgradability for that LST, right, that liquid stake token, it didn't, it, it kind of broke the, the this uh, decentralization matrix that we were developing around why choose Rocket Pool or this or that and, and the other things. Then you bring in the liquidity conversation and um, it starts to paint, you know, a certain type of picture. And then outside of that, I think, you know, a lot of the scrutiny around Lido is, is, um, is misguided, right? I think you know, the space in general likes to attack people, protocols, projects that, you know, are, you know, in the driver's seat and have created a level of success, let's call it, right? But, you know, you I think we have to ask ourselves, like, what the alternative is. Like, this is my perspective is if Lido were to self-limit, what is going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is the centralized exchanges that you have no clue what the hell is going on and you have no clue what's happening under the covers are just going to get more and more market dominance. Like, do you prefer that? Or do you prefer a, uh, you know, a DAO that is actively working to push as much decentralization as they can across both the operations and the tech? Like, just go look at, like, you, you talk about governance. There's been a, a year-long debate with an enormous amount of effort and time that has gone into this concept of two-token governance. You look at, you know, the staking router that they're building and what that can open up. You think about some of the, the, the distributed validator tech that they're looking to integrate and build with to open up that side. Like, it's not like they're just sitting there being like, oh, look at us. Like, we're, you know, we're number one and like, fuck you, right? Like, I don't, we don't care. It's like, no. They, they're not going to self-limit. I don't think, I don't know if they are, excuse me. doesn't seem like they're going to. I don't think they should because of the alternative. And instead, I think they're working their butt off to progress towards as decentralized as a state as they can, um, while at the same time pushing forward, you know, what is this new consensus mechanism for Ethereum which is again only a year old, right? You ask yourself like, how would the transition of proof of stake look like without a Lido, without all these integrations in DeFi, without all of that stuff? I think that's a good question to ask as well. But you know, often again, people are just gonna point, 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 point. So that that's how we thought about it in the decision-making process for why STETH is an asset. And that's a bit of my opinion around um, what I think to be you know, misguided criticism. Yeah, I resonate with a lot of what you said, especially the fact that, you know, if Lido self-limits, someone else is gonna take its place, right? It's just like cutting the head of the hydro. Something else is gonna mm -hmm. pop up. 
I feel like the the issue here it's uh, something beyond idle is more deeply about the consensus protocol and how that's going to evolve in the future to address that this kind of situation that we have right now. Um, and maybe in the future they're going to be like, I mean, hopefully in the future there's going to be better alternatives to this specific type of system right now. But at the moment, that's what we have, mm -hmm. right? Agreed. Um, and still on the topic of, of governance, you've been involved in this for quite a while now. What are some of the most important lessons that you gather over those three years that you've been dealing with DAOs? Well, DAOs are disasters. There's there's one thing. DAOs are disasters. Uh, most DAOs are jokes, to be totally honest, or decentralized theaters. Um, and and I think it's no one's fault. It's just so ridiculously early. Again, I think the space likes to um, put these types of concepts and narratives on a, a soapbox to make them seem they're so much more mature than they actually are. But in reality, they're far from being ready for that. And we've seen that continuously. Even just look at DeFi as a whole, right? Like DeFi was like five whales kind of depositing a bunch of users' funds into protocols. And like, it's just a fucking, you know, a lot of it is still so young and immature. Now the, the potential for it and the foundation that's being built is phenomenal. And I think it will, it will genuinely challenge the traditional financial system for the simple fact that it's exceptionally more transparent and, and it reduces, um, you know, all the in-between and gives power back to the people. And I think over time on a global scale, that's going to, um, that's going to win. But, you know, I think uh, the biggest lesson that I've learned at least is, uh, with DAOs, they should progress slowly. I don't think it should be this like, oh, we're a DAO day one, every decision and everything should be, you know, completely open to a bunch of random folks that can go and take 10 million bucks and buy a bunch of the token and do what they want to do to make their bags go up. Um, these type, these types of, uh, perverse incentives and mercenary actors tend to be about themselves much more than the long-term success of the on-chain organization. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson is start slower. And I'd say the second biggest lesson, which, you know, we've been lucky enough to transition to something like this is, um, is the power of representative democracy, right? There's a reason the world kind of works the way it does in an extent. Um, now, you know, representative, and I think synthetics is probably one of the best examples of it in terms of, you know, over time, uh, how it's progressed, how it works, and uh, the efficiency of it. But having qualified uh, individuals with vested interest that are dedicated to making the best decisions and being held accountable by token holders and the community. I think yields a lot more speed, which is important when fucking every week there's another landmine and something blowing up, right? And it also uh, ensures, you know, the maturity and the progression of that on-chain organization, right? Businesses don't just start ridiculously successful and then continue being successful forever. That's not how businesses work. It's It's a roller coaster. And often there's a lot of, you know, trial and error, swings at bat, all this type of stuff that requires, you know, dedicated, completely invested and long-term aligned um, individuals that are pushing some of this stuff forward. So I think that's, um, 
I think one, one other point actually to make there is, and this is important. So you can have a representative democracy. And I think this is what the, the problem that we have today in most societies is you don't know what happens behind closed doors, right? So it's great to say, hey, I'm going to elect you to represent me and my community in office and whatever. But then when that happens, it's all like a political trail, a bunch of promises, and then you don't know what the fuck what happens. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and inflation's up huge and money's being printed and whatever, right? Um, but it that's where we have the power to change that as well, is even in these elected um, or representative democracy type uh, on-chain organizations, you, you can have complete transparency, right? There is a request for comment for ev from everybody. There is the ability for people to vote with their tokens and express their opinion. There then is a decision-making process that needs a consensus amongst three, five, 10, 50, who knows how many people but there's a consensus mechanic there. Then those decisions are all public. You can see all those decisions and you can follow and verify they're being execute, executed as promised, especially if the majority, if not all of that's happening on chain. And that is ridiculously uh, more transparent and a step forward compared to what we're used to today in traditional corporations or in you know society as a whole. So. Those would be the two biggest lessons. One, start slower and, and progress towards more decentralization of the operation. And two, um, have more of represented democracy in smaller groups with focused areas that are empowered to make the right long-term decisions and are held accountable with extreme transparency by the token holders and community members. Yeah, awesome. And someone was looking for some reference of things they could emulate to accomplish some kind of system or um, both on like a implementation level and on a historical level. Is there any reference you could you could give them? Yeah, I'd say on the Badger front, you know, if you went on forum.badger.com um, or .finance, I can't remember um, uh, if, if, if it redirects, I think it does. But nonetheless, uh, forum.badger.com, uh, you can go under Treasury Council and you can get a feel for all the different types of decisions, the policy that it's being held against, you know, how often those decisions are made, the screenshots to show the the um, actual decisions, the multi-sig infrastructure that's executing those decisions. Um, I think another great place I said before, I'll say it again, is Synthetics. They have a wonderful governance dashboard that shows um, who the council members are, shows the recent election cycles, it shows all the different improvement proposals, ones that were approved, ones that were denied, the appropriate uh, snapshot votes to support those and um, the discussions that happen there. And then also like which councils make which decisions. They have this interactive graphic that you could take a look at as well. Um, so I'd say those are two great places to get a feel for what that actually looks like in the live, in the, um, in the world. Do you think we are ever gonna get that sort of implementation in a national level? of governance? Well, I think it's going to be a very long time because it's in the best interests of the governments to not have that so they can maintain more control, right? The whole concept of, of uh, transparency is to give power to the participants, right? In systems like this, they don't want that. 
They don't want that type of stuff. They want, you know, historically it's all been about control and um, ensuring that, you know, in, in whatever type of control mechanics they put forward, you know, if that's on the financial institution side, if that's on the academic side, if that's on the religious side, if that's on the political side, there's so many different examples across countries and, and continents around the world. Um, but I think a lot, a lot of it just comes back to control. And I, I can see it being a very long time before um, governments relinquish that control. It's not in their best interest to do that. I was just going to ask um, more into that, like, um, you know, the control side of sure. things that you mentioned, that you think eventually the decentralized side of finance, you know, crypto and everything is probably going to replace what we have right now. And just want to hear more of your thoughts about how you think that's going to happen, the, step, the steps that are going to allow that to happen at some point. I, I think um, it's very undefined. I can't really give a roadmap. I think there's a lot of things that need to happen. But, you know, for the most part, it starts with adoption. And that's the power of the technology is it's continuously going to give the control back to the people. And what's powerful about DeFi or this uh, decentralized financial infrastructure is that it's not isolated to a given country or city or um, area of the world. Deploying an immutable protocol, it's significantly more challenging than deploying a, a progressive one because there's no fixes. You can't just, you know, patch something that went wrong. So what are some steps that you guys took to make sure that it was as safe as it could possibly be? So uh, a couple things there. So you're never completely safe or secure. I think that's like the first thing. So you're always just trying your best to do as much as you can and get the smartest people and the most uh, sets of eyes to kind of look at your stuff before it goes to life and be, before you bring it to life. Because that is really what you're doing with immutable contracts. You're bringing them to life. You do not have the ability or influence to make changes. Um, so you're, you're really in a position where um, the user needs to, if there was a vulnerability or something like that, the user needs to take those specific actions, uh, which often is you know not the easiest to communicate when this is all done non-custodially and, and anybody from anywhere can just join. And if they're offline for a day or two, then they maybe miss some information, right? Like it's not... Um, it's not a good thing. So um, nonetheless, the, the process that we went through uh, was by far the most rigorous process. You know, we've we've brought in six or seven protocols to life and, um, you know, have had three plus billion dollars deposited in these contracts and so forth. So, you know, we've been through you know these exercises before quite extensively, but this was by far the most rigorous um, that we put forward. And it is not only because of the immutable nature, but you know, over the last few years, the security community um, has changed and evolved, right? I'm wearing a Code Arena shirt. And, you know, we were one of the first protocols to do a Code Arena contest. Now it's like, you know, there's like 10 a week or whatever it is, right? And there's independent security researchers and conferences for these researchers and whole ecosystems. And it's pretty amazing. Um, so with us, what we did, so first and foremost, I think the most important thing for anybody is you need to have a very competent, security-minded, and highly skilled internal group of developers and engineers. If you don't have that, you only can do so much, right? 
Um, another caveat here is that this is a very expensive, what I'm about to explain is a very expensive exercise. It's not an exercise I think that most can follow from a pure dollars and cents perspective. I think, you know, all in for Badger Dow outside of, um, you know, actual development costs, you're looking at, you know, close to five or $700,000, right? Um, Before we get into that exercise, can you elaborate a little bit more on the internal side of security? Like how do you, for example, build a team that can, is very security minded and, you know, is going to give a good standing for the protocol? Well, um, it's a bit hard for me to answer that because Badger is not a team, right? Badger is structured in a way where every kind of contributor is not contributor, but everyone's a, uh, an organization. They have their own business with potentially other clients and they're all contributing to Badger DAO, this ecosystem. Um, and pe some people contribute as like a formal auditing partner. Some people contribute their um, time and development effort because they have a dev shop, right? Um, some people provide marketing and strategy support, or that's what their consulting company does. There's a whole slew of things. So it's hard for me to answer that. Um, but I would say that, you know, people that are security minded, excuse me, engineers, and again, quality engineers, because how do you like, how do you differentiate between, you know, um, expert, intermediate and beginner? developer or smart contract developer in this instance. And there's all different types of security, right? There's, you know, the web two side of things, there's the web three side of things, but specific to the web three side, like I'll, I'll park this concept around what type of engineer is it? Because I think at each stage or each level of an engineer, there is the ability to be more security focused and security minded, even if you're a beginner. And we see that with, you know, beginners in code arena contests, like finding critical vulnerabilities that experts missed as an example, that maybe have a lot more experience in development than they do. So I'll kind of park like what differentiates a beginner from a, a, an expert engineer, but on the security side, I think it's pretty obvious in the measures that are taken and the checks and balances that are put in place in the code to show what, and, 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 and even the testing rigor that goes through um, that those engineers put their code through. Um, I think that that tells a big story around how security uh, forward they are. And then also how involved in the community they are. Like there, there's a community now. There wasn't a community before, right? You can go and try and join um, Spearbit and do the, you know, do the tests and see how you qualify. You can spend every day of the week doing contests if you want and have the leaderboard and your ability to find vulnerabilities speak for your security prowess, right? So I feel like not only in the activities that these developers could take um, and their code and how you look at their code, like how willing they are to be a part of this greater security community tells, a, you, know, tells you a lot around how security minded they are. Because I look at this as like us versus them what's what's them them are the bad actors that are just waiting they're waiting waiting oh can't wait for this new protocol to come out and a bunch of apes to put a hundred million dollars in it so i can steal it and do it for bad things or whatever the hell right and instead you know us are 
you know, the security community, the builders in the space, the evangelists for these new protocols and, and, and finance primitives that are trying their best to develop it, design it, secure it before it's, it goes to life, right? So the less security instances there are, or incidences there are, the more trust there is in DeFi, and also the less the bad actors are being able to take good people's money, right? Um, so that's why I think everyone that's part of this space really should invest time into getting involved and supporting the security community any way that they can. And if you're an engineer, um, even in a, in a minor way, you have to get involved in that type of stuff. You have to level up your, uh, your level of domain knowledge as it relates to security because it is like you can be a wonderful developer, like you could be a great developer and you could have brought in a lot of uh, smart contracts to life that have never experienced a vulnerability. But this technology is changing so quickly and you don't know what you don't know. So unless you're deeply, not even deeply, unless you're involved and you like you reviewed, oh, these 10 protocols got hacked in the last month. What did those hacks look like? How were they executed? That's going to give such a different perspective when you're going to build your next thing. And um, those sets of contracts that you're going to be building, you're most likely going to have a higher chance of not making those same mistakes. Now, anybody can make a mistake, but um, hopefully, you know, the greater the greater security uh, rigor that you put those contracts through after they're developed could help prevent some of those uh, obvious mistakes as well. So that exercise, yeah, I can speak through that for sure. So it doesn't, so uh, take a step back. It doesn't start when the code's done and the tests are done, right? Um, so obviously you, you work to have the, the highest quality engineers with the most security minded perspective building and doing the internal development and core development. The, 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 the next most impactful step that we didn't do in the past and I say we because there's a lot of um, contractors and contributors and organizations that have built a variety of protocols um, as part of the BadgerDAO ecosystem together over the years. But it's we never engaged a third party kind of independent security um, or, or group of, of security researchers in the very very early design phase like some of the first code that's pushed and the first prs that are there you know often you wait till you have like something and then you're like oh here you go like you know take a look um but we started working with a group that was one of the top wardens on code arena we got to know them over time um, because of how many code arena contests we've done and how early we were there and they were wonderful to work with and um Again, like in the well before months and months before our first audit, uh, we were working with them and they were reviewing our stuff and they were they were just having such a better understanding of uh, the design framework and the decisions that are going into this code because of how early and how involved they were in the development process. So I think that's probably one of the best things that uh, a team can do, especially a, a group that maybe is a little bit newer, right? And um, a little less experienced. There's an enormous amount of value. And that, and that's, I think it's a, a phenomenal bang for your buck too. I don't think it's by any means um, exceptionally expensive. Obviously it depends on who you work with, but nonetheless, it's just the, the value that you get from an exercise like that, it's, it's well worth the money. 
Um, so that's, you know, step one in the process. We're actually releasing like the 10 steps to secure a DeFi protocol kind of infographic in the next few days. So we'll talk about all this stuff um, and uh, you'll get it, you know, maybe it'll come around the same time some of this stuff starts to come together. But anyway, so you start with that. Um, for us, you know, EBTC in particular, uh, it's a pretty complex protocol, right? CDP protocols, although, you know, very long standing. They are relatively complex. There's a lot of factors that are involved and um, uh, expected market participants and market behavior that ensure the solvency of the system. So we worked closely with um, RiskDAO to do more of an economic audit, right? Really looking at the mechanisms that are, were in place, less code and more um, the design of it. And, you know, went through some some pretty extensive rigor there uh, to feel confident around the design decisions that were already coded or in the process of being coded. Uh, so that was the second step. Um, the third step probably should have been, in retrospect, um, starting the uh, invariant testing and really, you know, getting ninja level with that with someone like Antonio. We did that two or three steps later. Um, you know, for the next protocol that, you know, if, if these same contributors were to work on something, we would probably do that much earlier um, because a lot of the stuff that we found through audits, we were able to find, you know, through these testing mechanics as well. So it's less around, it's just having more insight into or more confidence in um, the code doing what you expect it to do. Let's just call it that, right? Um but nonetheless, our third exercise was working with more of a multidisciplinary uh, auditor. So it was our first formal audit. Um, for that audit, I think it makes sense to, you know, work with uh, a group that has a vast experience across a variety of different protocols, but uh, does, does have uh, experience in your kind of given niche. In our instance, it's more DeFi oriented. So um, that was obviously an important decision-making framework. So the third exercise was that formal audit. The fourth exercise was more a, of a niche down um, additional formal audit. We worked with Spearbit on the second one. The first one we worked with Trust. Um, and we worked with Spearbit on the second one. And in that exercise, you know, we specifically wanted to work with auditors that had experience with CDP-based protocols and had familiarity with the liquidity system since um, our foundational code base was based off of liquidity. Uh, so we went through that exercise. Again, that was, um, that was a great exercise. And then from there, um, we started working with um, Antonio and uh, getting our invariant testing and that whole fuzzing infrastructure um, in, a, in a great place. And um, you know, we're, you know, as we're getting ready for our code arena contest in the next couple of weeks, which is later on in the process that I'll explain, you know, but having these tool sets now are so wonderful because we can give these tool sets to security researchers and just be like, run these. And now you have like 20 people, like we give them the setup, give them the tools. And not only did we run it and Antonio ran it, but now you have 10 or 20 folks that maybe can run it for like a year. And maybe like six months from now, stuff comes up that you didn't expect, which is great. So we're going to, as much as we're open sourcing the code, we're also open sourcing the tools for testing that um, we can hope to, you know, have that, you know, further secure the protocol. But nonetheless, um, 
you know, we started, we started that exercise. We then decided to do what I guess you would argue is more of like a private audit. Uh, but we worked with the Cantina crew and again, niched down further to two auditors that we had a great experience with in Spearbit um, that knew the code base already. And we made mitigations to some of the vulnerabilities that were found in the previous audit. And they obviously, like any auditors, any formal audit with a set timeline, um, there's many instances where they say, hey, I wish I had more time to dig into this, but they have to pick and choose, you know, how much time they spend where. So having those same folks that showed, uh, you know, a lot of interest and obviously um, um, outcome in the previous audit, we then niched down with them and went into an additional audit uh, with that group. And that would, I guess you can consider that to be kind of the sixth step of the, of the process. Um, the seventh step that uh, we're pursuing is a code arena contest or a crowdsourced contest. Uh, for these contests, you know, the benefit here and the ideal state is that no one finds anything, right? That's ideal. But um, that contest is really about getting as many eyes as humanly possible on the code, right? A few years ago, what would you do? I call you up. Hey, bro, you know, we're getting ready to launch this thing in a month. Can you review it? And you're like, oh, yeah, man, you reviewed my shit last month. No problem. Call so-and-so. Hey, man, can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Like, that's how it works. Now you can have hundreds of people across all different levels of skill looking at your stuff and putting eyes on it and having the right aligned incentives to get involved in identifying these vulnerabilities. Um, so that, I think that's a very important step, probably the most important step, I would argue, um, at the latter stages of development. And then subsequent to that, you know, we're going to do a pre-launch bounty uh, where the contracts are on mainnet. But, um, you know, we don't really say, hey, everybody come to this website and use it. Um, instead, you know, have a dedicated bounty, have uh, a variety of different um, security researchers and white hats participate. And then from there, launch a public bounty uh, once the contracts are live for, for everyone to play around with them and, and obviously use the protocol and the apps. And then finally, uh, the last step I think is pretty important is this like emergency response uh, situation. So defining like what those emergency response um, exercises could look like, how you're prepared for some of those things. I think with immutable contracts or a little, little uh, they're more difficult to plan for because you really technically can't do anything. But um, you could do a variety of other things, right? You could have uh, predefined kind of groups that uh, offer, you know, offer this kind of delegation ability where you can delegate, you know, via like some type of account abstraction or, or smart wallet or whatever, um, the ability for them to kind of pull your funds if there was like a an issue, right? So you're almost like delegating the responsibility of um, acting when there is an emergency. So we've been, we've been thinking about that quite a bit and what that looks like um, for when this thing comes to life. But for those that have um, uh, upgradable contracts, this should be a very well-tested and robust um, game plan and blueprint for how to respond in an emergency, who's involved in those war rooms. War rooms are like the fucking, you know, they're hell, right? Um, they are very, they are not enjoyable at all, but um, in many instances are necessary. 
I think um, there's a few groups that have come to light recently that are that are willing to um, assist folks if you call on them and you put the bat signal out, uh, which I think is wonderful. And these are the folks that have been involved in many of the uh, war rooms and exploits in the past as DeFi has kind of um, started walking the last few years. But nonetheless, th those would be the 10 steps. That's at least what uh, you know contributors and contractors to Badger have have done for EBTC. And again, this is something that's um, not met, not not everyone can do because of the costs associated with it. You'll probably have to pick and choose certain things there. But um, you know these things are super important, which is crazy, right? You think like after all these years and all these exploits. You know, and, and I think, you know, this is the benefit of the, the bear market, I think. The bear market, you know, I've been through, um, this is my third. So, like, they're fucking painful. This is by far um, one of the most painful in terms of, you know, the impact on uh, something that I'm very, very involved in versus, like, just, like, the personal pain. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the, 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 the bull market was insane because, you know, like, you know, we would come up with the, the contributors would come up with a concept, build that concept, do some marketing around that concept, which is not more than, you know, some tweets and some discord announcements, launch these contracts and these protocols or protocol. And there'd be like a billion dollars in there in like a day. Like, I don't give a fuck what type of security you can do. I don't care, you know, how much you, you, you push the envelope there. You're never prepared enough for that. Um, and, and this is all while like these are like some of these contracts are very innovative in nature. The first time they're ever being done, you know, things that you would consider to be nuanced vulnerabilities like reentrancy attacks were not that just two years ago. Right. Um, but nonetheless, you know, in the bear market, it's different. You know, you can bring something to life and expect there not to be that much capital that goes into those contracts, which gives you less of this, um, there, there's less of this eagerness to rush. So I think there's, I think there was more folks when the market was on fire that were eager to bring things to market because, you know, they were chasing the dollars and the cents and well, not the dollars and cents, more like the billions and the millions, but um, they were chasing this stuff and, and they envisioned how impactful it could be for their business and maybe their personal wealth creation. But in the bear market, that's not the case. And I think it takes quite a bit of pressure off of builders um, and it should encourage them to invest more time into security because there isn't a rush. You know, nothing's going to change in the matter of a few months. And then it makes you just be more pragmatic, right? Like, look, look about the real world. I call it the real world. Like, when you're building software that has the potential to have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in it, you don't fucking just take someone's code, slap a logo on it, and, like, go to market in, like, a month with, like, a bunch of people who have never done that before. Like, that's freaking ridiculous, you know? Instead, you invest years and years in many instances uh, before you bring that to life. And I think that same level of maturity is going to naturally come into place, or at least in the protocols that are able to stand the test of time and uh, be around for years to come and, and have that level of confidence from depositors. Um, I come from a um, 
sales and marketing and more business development background. Um, so, you know, I, I studied business. I got into tech. Uh, this is, I guess, now like uh, 12 years ago. And I started um, on the sales and marketing and business development side of technology solutions, more enterprise level solutions for big corporations, stuff like that. And I really cut my chops on, you know, how to sell. Obviously, that comes with how to communicate, um, interpersonal skills, marketing, all that type of stuff. And I think a lot of the core and foundational skills that are necessary for anybody that gets involved in entrepreneurship as a whole. And then from there, um, I wanted to experience what it was like, like building a business. And I got involved um, in my own business or sorry, I started my own business and I wanted to learn how to sell online um, because I figured out I, I've had some relative success in being able to sell at, uh, you know, the Fortune 500 level and enterprise level sales and in person. And I did that in, you know, New York City, which is, uh, you know, kind of the, the shark's den for that type of stuff. And um, and I, and this was kind of when um, e-commerce was starting to, to blow up. So got involved in that and uh, learned a lot about digital marketing, online marketing, um, advertisements. You know, this is when Instagram started doing ads and all this type of stuff. So uh, got you know started to cut my teeth there and started to understand that a lot more. And this concept of like an exchange of value between two individuals or an online business and an individual um, without, you know, a personal interaction, which I thought was fascinating. And then from there and throughout this, I, I was genuinely interested in crypto and I was invested in it and um, would go to meetups and, you know, monkey around on the forums and things along those lines. And then, um, it was from there that I felt like I wanted to dedicate my time in building in this space. I felt like there was enormous potential here. This was like in 2016 in that range. And um, there was a very clear gap. I think there still is, but there was a clear gap for uh, folks that were more business development, marketing, sales oriented, kind of business leadership oriented folks. Uh, so I started really doing more consulting and uh, investing activities or, you know, invest in, in, a, in a younger project, help them out, you know, with the skills that I have or consult for them or whatever it may be. And then from there, um, you know, being active in a variety of different investments and projects that I saw do well um, and many that didn't, I, I decided, you know, let's try and bring something to life. That was, um, and I, and I did a bunch of stuff in between that, like, you know, community building exercises, uh, um, you know, co-hosted San Francisco blockchain week in 2018 and hosted one of the largest, you know, events here in Canada and, and a variety of stuff. Um, did some charity work, crypto charity work during COVID and, you know, things along those lines, um, to try and bring the community together. And then from there, you know, let's, let's bring this thing to life. Um, there's a clear need. And, um, and yeah, and it was kind of a combination, a lot of that experience, a lot of that network uh, development and, um, you know, a passion for, uh, building with high integrity. I think that's one of the biggest things like this is a game of survival. I've seen so many folks, even the last three years come and go that were, became the character, the main character of Twitter 
and went from a nobody to a million followers and everyone fucking, you know, following everything that they say and billions of dollars rolling into things that they're marketing or promoting um, just to, you know, be in a jail cell or, you know, be left with nothing or who knows what, right? So, um, you know, I've always prided myself on being a person of integrity and uh, operating from a certain moral standard and compass. So bringing that to crypto in and itself in a world full of so many scams actually is a bit of a superpower, which is fucked up. But, um, you know, that, that kind of just all brought brought it to the forefront, right? Like, you know, when I was doing sales primarily, when I was doing sales before, you know, at any time you could sit here and lie, right? Just to get a deal done, just to do whatever. And, you know, I learned how stupid that was to do and how short-sighted it was. So a lot of that kind of long-term perspective, relationship building, kind of transcended into, like, how do you institute those values into a, a community or an ecosystem, uh, which is what we tried to do with Badger. And one of the reasons why I think Badger's still around, right? You know, three years later, um, through the ups and downs of what has been, like, fucking crazy shit in the market, you know, yeah, badgers, badgers never hide. It's it's hard to keep a badger down. You know, you talk about security in the end of 2021, you know, we had a web two exploit for over $120 million, um, which was a, a very traumatic kind of time for the community and, and contributors. But we got through that too, right? And we're here on the cusp of bringing something to life and a primitive to life that, um, that doesn't exist that could that we believe could be gigantic and have a major impact for the future of the space all the while you know the market's still fucking in the shitter and trials are ongoing and and all this type of jazz right i think brian armstrong said it the other day too it's just like bearable you just gotta be focused on building and building with you know a, a certain set of values and with this long-term perspective of what you're actually trying to bring to life. And I think the more folks do that and the less they think about, you know, their ability to make money quickly or whatever it may be, the better off the whole space will be. Um, I've been um, pretty excited to see some of the advancements in um, DeFi as a whole. So some of the ones that come to mind, you know, just recently Instadep introduced their Fluid protocol, um, which attempts to drive innovation across a variety of different areas from liquidations to money markets to uh, liquidity concentration. Um, also, I think there's quite a bit of innovation happening in the money market space, right? Um, you know, Morpho Blue was just announced a few days ago. There's a variety of different protocols working on isolated lending. Um, I think subsequent to that, I've been really impressed and obviously a bit biased because I've been living and breathing like a concept of a stable coin. But, you know, the how much USD based stable coins have evolved and what's happening um, with this, you know, real world asset proliferation on chain. I think um, it's 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 a natural progression. Right. I think that's where the floodgates start to open from a capital perspective. I think there's a long way to go and it's starting to remember, it's starting to bring back feelings of like early DeFi, like, holy shit. Like, you know, there's like no more centralized exchanges are dead. And it's just decentralized exchanges now. We're like, whatever, banks are gone. You don't need a bank, you know, go to you know some type of C5 provider. Um, 
like that's I, I think you know it's 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 really exciting to see that happen and i think it's going to be massive for the space and i think what you know even frax came up with yesterday and their concept around staked frax and, and frax bonds obviously what makers done and um you know they pretty much spearheaded that you know entire initiative and what's really interesting about the maker approach or the die approach to stable coins which i've become very fond of is this idea of treating a stable coin like a bank balance sheet and thinking about you know the assets liabilities and the equity or the surplus and managing the the risks and solvency across those while you know thinking about the core value proposition of or excuse me the core um business model of the bank right is you know you want to lend money to the bank or deposit money in the bank for a variety of reasons the bank may pay you for that the bank may just you know, want that to, you, you may want to put it there for safekeeping or security or whatever it may be. But then on the flip side, you know, they have this insatious demand for borrowers that want that money and they are able to, you know, pay you and then charge them and make a spread while trying to ensure solvency. I think we've seen how that's been a fucking disaster for a variety of reasons. But I think one of the biggest ones is lack of transparency which I think stable coins and stable coin design protocols and assets um, could um, really evolutionize. And that gets me very excited as well. And it kind of goes to the, the, the question you asked earlier around how do you see that proliferation from trade fi dominating to DeFi dominating? I think that's going to be one of the key catalysts there. And, and again, it just sits on the same foundation, which is like more transparency, right? Putting the power into the people versus into the corporations or the governments or whatever it may be. Um, so those are some of the things that get me excited. Um, I've always been a fan of like the curve ecosystem. So what they're starting to do with curve USD and like this concept of, um, or, or their liquidation concept, their, uh, their dedicated AMM, uh, for this type of soft liquidation mechanic, I think is really innovative. And then just the incentivization network that exists around curve and how that's helping power stablecoin. So those are some of the things that uh, that get me fired up. Yeah, man, listen, this is great. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on and letting me kind of spew the, the good word of security, DeFi, EBTC, a bit about myself, obviously the Badger world, out of it.